Remember the old hymn, Trust and Obey? I love that song. And hadn't thought of it in years. What great words. And it goes with tonight's message. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. And then the chorus, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but His smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt or a fear, not a sigh or a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Um, And then the last verse. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at His feet or walk by His side in the way. What He says, we will do. Where He sends, we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. I'm just reminded as I'm so, we're so busy and crazy, our lives are uh, just crazy and upside down. And I was reminded today that the rest comes in Him. The rest comes in, in, rest, in trusting and in, in obeying the Lord and trusting that He's guiding and providing and leading and feeding. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by His Spirit, and He will meet our need. Uh, we just rest in Him, we trust in Him. Amen? All right, let's pray, and then we'll get into our text for tonight. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Father, for your ever-extended arm of love reaching out to us while yet sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. You made a way that we could come into the presence of a holy God. We pray, Father, your blessing upon this time, that we would, as we study your word, that we would just see how much you love us, Lord. Guide us through this time tonight, direct our steps, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. What, I've like, what I like about the book of Isaiah and, and is that um, while it is a book of prophetic judgment, God is pronouncing his judgment against the nation of Israel and how he was going to use the Assyrians to uphold that judgment, he's gracious to us in that um, he doesn't let us linger in the... the sorrow and the, the um, heartache of judgment for too long as we read through the book. It's almost like Isaiah, as he's writing, he's like, all right, enough of the judgment stuff. I need to focus on the coming Messiah. I need to focus on the millennial kingdom. I need to focus on something good that's going to come from this. And that's obviously directed by God as he has inspired the scripture. And, and so as we last week kind of focused on the judgment that was coming against the nation of Israel in the Assyrians coming down on them, as we get into chapters 11 and 12, uh, it it changes the focus, and it's going to once again give us uh, a picture of the the Messiah that when Isaiah was writing was yet to come. We know Messiah, that means Savior, the one who saves. That, of course, is Jesus, who came, uh, who we just worshiped, and uh, who came 2,000 years ago. So we finished chapter 10 last week, and it kind of ended with this idea that God was going to bring judgment uh, against the Bows, the bows in the thicket, the bows in the thicket, however you want to say it. He was talking about nature. He was, he was likening it to nature. And he's going to carry on that natural theme in chapter 11, where it says in verse 1, there shall come forth a rod, and notice the R is capitalized, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, 
and a branch, again capitalized, shall grow out of his roots. So this is now a prophecy speaking about the Messiah, the Savior that is to come. His name is Jesus. And, from, and we get some information here that it's going to come from the stem of Jesse. Well, who's Jesse? Uh, he's the guy on the Dukes of Hazard, right? Uh, you know, he's a, not, not that Jesse. But uh, Jesse was the father of David. And so it's interesting that, that Isaiah here would say Jesse rather than from David. But we know that when David was ruling as the king, there was a promise given to him by God to say, you will always have somebody on the throne. There, 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 somebody will reign perpetually for all, all time on your throne, David. And so, um, so as they walked through this judgment, it would have been easy, I think, to lose sight of that promise. Because in 587 BC, 587 years before Christ came, Zedekiah was king. And Zedekiah was the last king of Judah. And then they went into the Babylonian captivity, and they, they were taken off captive. And the king's throne there in Judah, in Jerusalem, was empty for 600 years, unoccupied. So as the nation of Israel looked at that and said, well, God, you made a promise that you didn't keep. Because for 600 years, we haven't had anybody from the family of David ruling and reigning over us. That promise wasn't broken. It looked like it was because God brings beauty from ashes and life from death. And out of the dead old stump that had been dead for, and dormant for 600 years, a green shoot is going to arise. That's the idea of verse 1. For the, a rod from the stem of Jesse. The, the, you, you picture the stump that's been just torn apart. A branch is going to come out of those roots that had been dormant for 600 years. Both of these names, the rod and the branch, are referring to the same person. Jesus is both the rod, rod being some, a, a form of judgment, something the shepherd would carry in order to pronounce judgment upon the sheep to, to place discipline on them. Jesus is also the branch. A branch would be a, a measure of peace. They would extend the olive branch, right, as a, a measure of peace. And Jesus is that peace. Jesus is the reconciliation between us and God. And so verse 1, obviously, and, and, and into the chapter is going to refer to the Messiah who is to come, Jesus. So now we're going to get into what's known as the sevenfold description of the Spirit of God. That the, there's seven different attributes um, given to the Spirit of God. It says in um, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That also speaking of Jesus. And from the seven spirits, capital S spirits, referring to the Spirit of God, who are before his throne. And, and so the idea, and it's repeated throughout Revelation that there's this sevenfold description of the Spirit of God. And we are going to glean that from verse 2 as we read it. It says, the Spirit of the Lord, this speaking of Messiah, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, 
and the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So there's the, there's seven things are all in that one verse, and it's all referring to the attributes that are the spirit of the Lord. So the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The, the spirit of the Lord would be the covering one or the number one thing. The spirit of wisdom, number two, and understanding, number three, counsel, number four, might, number five, the spirit of knowledge, number six, and the, and the fear of the Lord, number seven. First of all, it says, the, referring to the Messiah that was to come, we say, or we believe it to be Jesus, we know it to be Jesus, that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's interesting to think about, because think about when Jesus came to the earth um, and, and began his ministry. Um, how did he begin his ministry? Right? He, he, he lived for 30 years in, in, in obscurity, and then all of a sudden it was time for him to minister. He ministered the last three years of his life. Well, he began his public ministry by being baptized by John the Baptist. He went to the river Jordan, and in Matthew chapter 3, it says, Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized him by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit me, or permit it now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, when Jesus had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and hear this, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then one of the other accounts even says, listen to him at that point. So the, the prophecy given in verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, is fulfilled in Jesus at, the, at his baptism when the Spirit descends from heaven and, and lights on him, it's in, and, and alights on him and rests on him. The second fold is the Spirit of wisdom. Jesus never made a bad decision. How about that? And not just for the three years that he was in public ministry. As he defeated sin and death and resurrects to life, he's never made a bad decision. And I would say, as a reminder to myself, that's a pretty good reason to trust and obey in him, right? To trust him and to obey him. He doesn't make bad decisions because he has the spirit of wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge put into practice. And he has all knowledge, and so he certainly has practiced it all. The third being the spirit of understanding. I, heard, I read this quote on Instagram today from Bob Goff, and I liked it. We shouldn't act surprised when we don't understand what a God who says he passes all understanding is doing. <laughs> Read it again. We shouldn't act surprised when we don't understand what a God who, pass, who says he passes all understanding is doing. God, I don't understand what you're doing. Exactly. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. It doesn't mean that he won't reveal to us at a certain time, but we shouldn't be over, uh, overwhelmed or, or we shouldn't fall into fear when it appears as though God is doing something that we don't fully understand. If we were able to understand all of God, he'd be too small for us to save us. If, we, if our finite minds could understand the full attributes of God and the full uh, depth of, of God he'd be too small to save us because our minds are puny. We shouldn't act surprised when we don't understand what he's doing. 
The, th- the fourth thing is uh, of counsel, that he would have counsel. And we talked about this in chapter 9 last week. God is all-knowing. Jesus is all-knowing. There is nothing that he doesn't know. On top of that, he cares about us. He cares about all things. And so he is the wonderful, comma, counselor. He's both wonderful and a counselor, but he's also a wonderful counselor. There, there's no greater place to find counsel, in fact, because he understands. Um, the fifth thing, that he would be filled with might, the spirit of might. Chapter 9, we read also, uh, he's um, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. He is all-powerful. Not only is he all-knowing, he's all-powerful. He has knowledge as well, and that's the sixth thing. The sixth fold of the Spirit of God is that he has knowledge. Jesus knows the end from the beginning. You and I don't. We don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We don't know if tomorrow's our last day on earth. We don't know if we're going to make it home tonight. But he does. He sees the end from the beginning. That's the kind of knowledge that God has that you and I don't. And then the last thing is that he would walk in the fear of the Lord. Uh, and that fear doesn't mean that we're afraid, that Jesus was afraid of God the Father. But he says in John 17, verse 4, I have glorified you on earth. This is Jesus, right before he goes to the cross, is praying to the Father. In chapter 17, is it's called the high priestly prayer. It's his beautiful prayer. And and so Jesus is praying to the Father. And he says, I, Jesus, have glorified you, the Father, on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. It is out of a reverence for God. It is out of a fear of the Lord, a healthy fear of the Lord, that we accomplish what he wants us to accomplish. And Jesus fully accomplished it. So he was filled with the reverence, the fear of the Lord. Our lives as we're followers of Christ, our ministry, all that we do should be marked by the same. We should have a, a, a holiness. We should have a reverence for God. We shouldn't take our relationship with God flippantly. Jesus is not our homeboy, as Madonna once said, I think. He's our heavenly Father. He's righteous. He's holy. There is none like Him. We should revere His name as as a subject would revere a king's name. It says in verse 3 of chapter 11, His delight, speaking of Messiah, His delight is in the fear of the Lord. He, he, He practices this reverence of God. And then look at this. And He shall not judge by the sight of His eyes, nor decide by the hearing of His ears. <laughs> it almost sounds like a uh, a ninja skill or something, you know. It's like hey, he he can catch the fly without seeing it. He can. He doesn't have to. That's not what he not what he's saying exactly. But he's not going to be influenced by what as he judges and and Christ will judge the earth as he judges. He's not going to be influenced by what he sees. He's not going to be influenced by how much we beg him or how much we plead with him or what he hears. It says in 1 Samuel, as, as God was selecting King David, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
And so Jesus isn't going to judge based on what he sees or hears. He's going to judge based on the condition of the heart. Because he can see our hearts. He knows our hearts. In fact, the only way to judge rightly is to know the heart's motive. And no man can know another man's heart's motive. I, I don't know what's compelling you to do what you're doing. I can't see your heart. Now, if we spend enough time with one another and we get to know each other very well, then we can know your tendencies. I can know what you're you're leaning toward or a decision that you might make. But the truth of the matter is we can deceive one another very easily, but we cannot deceive God. God knows the heart. And that's how he's going to rightly judge. Man can't know another man's motive. Only God can know what our motives are. So therefore, only God can rightly judge. And that's why it's left to him. He's not going to be impacted by what he sees or hears. He's going to judge rightly. It says, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth And with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. There's power in the word of God. And he is perfectly just. He's going to judge rightly. Righteously, he shall judge the the poor and the meek of the earth. He's perfectly just in that, knowing the intention of every man's heart. And he's going to judge by the rod of his mouth, it says there. It's not going to be... um, Anything more than a spoken word that will condemn the unrighteous. And there's power in the word of God. You know, everything that exists currently, how did it come about? It was spoken into existence by God. He merely said it, let there be light. And there was light. That's something that you and I can't do. I mean, we can say it, let there be light, and go turn the light switch on. But that's not even... That's not even creating it. We're just transferring electricity. We're just, we're just allowing electricity to travel through the conduit. Well, we could put the wire in, but that's still not creating it. The word create there means from nothing. You know, it's, it's like, I could build anything that God built. Yeah, well, get your own dirt, you know. You know, make your own stuff. And that's the idea is, is he created all things So if he spoke all things into existence, certainly he's capable of making all things right by his word as well. All it is is a rearrangement of what is wrong, a correcting of what is wrong. So that's not any more difficult than creating for him. So it's by the rod of his mouth that he's going to slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. These things which are going to gird the Messiah, these marks that the Messiah is going to have, the the thing that people will see is, is His righteousness and His faithfulness. They will always be with Him. He's marked by these things. And so now as we get into verse 6, He's going to Isaiah is going to talk about the millennial reign of Messiah, that which we are looking forward to. The, the first coming of Messiah came in when Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago, but he didn't fully accomplish all that he was set out to do. There is a, a, a time where he will come to rule and reign. We, we know it as the millennial kingdom or the thousand-year reign, and that will happen after the great tribulation. What we're going to see is when Christ makes his righteous judgment, the effect of that righteous judgment is peace. 
Check out verses 6, 7, and 8. This, is, this, is, uh, this sounds like fantasy, but this is what will be. Verse 6, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. Right now, the only way a lamb and a wolf dwell together is if the lamb is in the belly of the wolf. That's the only way it happens, but that's not what he's talking about here. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And hear this, and a little child shall lead them. In the millennial kingdom, when Christ is ruling and judging righteously, there will be peace in the animal kingdom. And a child's going to lead them. You're going to walk out of your house and walking down your street will be a little three-year-old with a lion behind him. And you won't be worried. Imagine having a lion in your house. Right? Drinking a cup of coffee and he's nuzzling into your arm. <laughs> right? Kind of cool. I, I, I'm more the Black Panther kind of guy. I've always wanted a Black Panther. Slick animals, man. So, verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze. The cow, that makes sense. The cow grazes now. But the bear, the bear doesn't graze. Well, I guess he's omnivorous. Bears eat berries and stuff like that. They eat meat as well. Their young ones shall lie down together, the cow and the bear. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. So all the animals... Was, uh, what we want to understand is all the animals are going to return to the Eden state. Herbivores. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. Hey, where's Johnny? Oh, he's out back with the cobras. <laughs> and the weed child shall put his hand in the viper's den. Why? Because there'll be perfect peace on the earth. Currently, the earth groans under the weight of sin. Because of the fall of Adam and every one of us since then, seven billion people currently, the earth groans under the weight of our sin. All of creation is impacted by it, including the animal kingdom. But when the Lord reigns again here on the earth, that thousand-year reign, and He's going to bring about His peace by His judgment, the world will be set again in proper context. The lion and the lamb will lay down together. There'll be peace among the animal kingdom. And there'll be peace among men as well. That's what it says in the next few verses. Verse 9, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day... There shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. We read earlier in the book that everybody's going to want to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the place where Jesus is ruling and reigning from. Uh, we read elsewhere that, that the Gentiles are going to ask the Jews, will you take us with you as you go back to Jerusalem? We wish to see, we want to see the King of Kings. The, the place that he's going to reign is going to be glorious. It's going to be better than Disneyland. Everybody will want to see it. And the whole earth will be full of that knowledge of the Lord. Um, it says there in verse 10, uh, of the, the root of Jesse, which we learned from verse 1, of course speaks of Jesus, He's going to stand as a banner to the people. What does that mean? Well, 
Armies marched with banners in those days. As, as two kingdoms came to fight one another, there was a, a banner man, somebody that would carry the regent, somebody that would carry the standard to say, we are of this kingdom. And, and what he's saying here is that Jesus is that banner. Jesus is the declaration of the kingdom, the, that, the, the kingdom that is ruling and bringing unity to the world. It's a crazy line here in the midst of the Old Testament context in verse 10, where it says, the Gentiles shall seek him. That would be an odd statement to the Jews at this time, because the Gentiles were pagans. The Gentiles had no interest in God. The the Israelites, the Jewish people were God's chosen people, and they said, that's the end of it. There is, God's not reaching out to anybody else. So to read this line, the Gentiles are going to seek him, the, the, the banner, they're going to seek the one that brings forth peace. But to you and I, in the day that we live in, the church age, thank God that the Gentiles seek him. Because I'm not Jewish at all. But God has made a way. We can see how this has been fulfilled through Jesus. And the falling away of the Jews, the fulfillment of Daniel, and, and what we saw in Romans, that we've been grafted in, the Gentiles have been grafted in. This is uh, the church age is the fulfillment of this idea in verse 10. It shall come to pass in that day, the day of the millennial reign, that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the island uh, islands of the sea. So God is going to extend his hand, reach out his hand to save uh, his people, to recover the remnant of his people, speaking of the Jews, a second time. Well, when was the first time? Well, the first time was in Exodus. The first time was as God brought his chosen people out of the land of Egypt. That's a good thing to note here as we're going to tie that in together a little bit later. So the first time was when when he pulled them out of Egypt. The second time will be in the millennial kingdom when he pulls them from the four corners of the earth. In the, in the tribulation period, the seven years prior to the millennial reign, um, Antichrist will, is going to be on the scene at that point. And at, in the, at the three point, or the halfway mark, the three and a half year mark, he's going to come against the Jews. It's called the abomination of desolation. He's going to stand in the Jewish holy place, and declare himself to be king. And and the Jews' eyes will be open to the fact that who they thought was their Messiah is not, in fact, their Messiah. And and then a persecution is going to break out against the Jews, and not just the Jews, but all who do not take the mark of the beast. And, And it's going to scatter the Jews all over the earth once again. Right now we're witnessing a return to Israel. The The population of Israel is continuing to grow and grow and grow as Jews venture back home, but there will come a day in that seven-year period in which they will be scattered again when Antichrist turns against them. So what's, what's being said now in verse 11 is, after that's done, the one who rules and, uh, and righteously judges, the Messiah, is going to draw them back. It says in verse 12, He'll set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Everybody's going to come home. Also, the envy of Ephraim shall depart. Now remember, Ephraim was the largest tribe to the north. 
of the ten tribes of Israel. They, remember, they were in civil war at the time between the north and the south. And so anytime Ephraim is re- referenced, that was the largest tribe. It's talking of all ten tribes to the north. The envy of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut, o- cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. There's going to be a peace between the north and the south. Uh, but they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. So at the, at the point that Isaiah was writing this, for him to say that there would be peace between the north and the south, there, there isn't much more that could have been out there. Like this was, this was almost a preposterous idea to them to say, we're going to have peace between the north and the south again? But that was the case. That will be the case. There'll be peace among the Jewish nation. Verse 15, The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. With His mighty wind, He will shake His fist over the river and strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over dry shod. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria, as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. And so God is going to do something at this time. As the remnant is returning to Israel, he's going to physically alter the properties of the lands around the nation of Israel that will make it easier for the people of Israel to return. He's going to impact the tongue of the Sea of Egypt. That's the uh, I forget what it's called. No, that's the river. The river it's spoken of here is the Euphrates. But it's um, he's going to impact these two areas to make it so that men will cross over or dry shod. They'll be able to move across the land. And in the day that you and I live in, it kind of seems strange that people will be walking back to Israel. But that's what he's saying here, is they're going to be able to walk over dry shod. It seems strange until we hear a story about thousands of Syrian refugees walking thousands of miles all of a sudden. In the days of cars and planes and trains, we see today Syrian refugees walking from country to country. So it's certainly possible that they would return by walking to Israel. Now chapter 12, I love chapter 12 because it's short. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's why you love chapter 12. <laughs> chapter 12 is a picture of men's worship of God in the day of his reign. It's a picture of the way that man is going to worship when Christ is ruling and reigning in his thousand-year reign on earth. What you and I can glean from it is Christ rules and reigns in our hearts now. And so we can take this picture of chapter 12 and implement it in our lives. Uh, and this is what our lives should look like currently. It says in 12.1, In that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. So in that day, the day of the Lord, the day of the thousand-year reign, people are going to say, Lord, 
I will praise you. That's going to be the outpour of their life. That's, the, that's going to be the heartbeat and the thing that they speak of. Men will worship in spirit and in truth, as it talks about in John chapter 4. It will be beautiful to behold. It will be a, 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 a genuine and heartfelt worship. I will praise you, as the psalmist says. I will give you glory. I will exalt your name. And why? He gives reason why in verse 1. You were angry with me. Notice that's past tense. God no longer is angry with the one who is praising Him. Why was God angry with them? Well, why is God angry with anyone? Because of our sin. It's our sin that separates us from His love. It's the things that we have done wrong. God is just and God is holy. And God, in His presence, demands perfection. To put anything imperfect in the presence of perfection is to make perfection imperfect and so he cannot have imperfection in his presence he's angry with us because we chose sin over him you were angry with me but the next sentence your anger is turned away why is his anger turned away because when we place our faith in jesus when we place our 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 belief in what christ accomplished on the cross The anger that was directed, vented toward us, is suddenly poured out on His Son, Jesus, on the cross. He takes the wrath that you and I deserve and directs it to Jesus. So Jesus absorbs that wrath. He he cried out from the cross, it's finished, it's paid in full. I've taken that wrath of God. And so the anger is turned away from, from us. And then the last phrase, you comfort me. After we place our faith in Christ. Um, he invites us into his family. It's, we become his sons and daughters. He, he invites us to call him Abba, Father. That's a beautiful term. It's this beautiful picture of, of intimacy. Abba means dad. You know, Not just father, but dad. It's a, a beautiful picture of the love that he has for us, the comfort that he has for us. I love verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. I can't read that without thinking of the Yeah, we used to do a song quite a bit that, that is that verse. It has this very Jewish feel to it. And uh, in fact, it goes into this la 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 la. You almost vision the Jewish dancing. What a great verse. God is my salvation. That is the phrase Jehovah Yeshua. Jehovah, meaning God, is my salvation. Yeshua. It's interesting. Jehovah Yeshua, over the years, gets shortened to the word, in fact, to the name Joshua. God is my salvation. Joshua, in the Greek language, if we translate the name Joshua, you and I translate it to the name Jesus. God is my salvation. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bring forth a son. And this is speaking to Joseph, Jesus' father. She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jehovah Yeshua. He will save his people from their sins. 
you shall call his name Jesus. Behold, God is my salvation, Jehovah Yeshua. Beautiful. I will trust and will not be afraid. We're to trust in him. We're, tr- we're to trust in his salvation. We shall not be afraid because, as it says, the Lord, if the Lord is for us, who shall stand against us? And the Lord is our strength and our song. He is our strength. We're going to learn later in chapter 40. Uh, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. He is our strength. I already quoted Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's His strength. He is our song. He's our joy. He's our hope. He's our life. He's our love. He is our song and has become our salvation. Christ coming to earth. Now, check this out. Exodus, and you might want to write this if you're a note taker, write this off to the side of verse 2. Exodus chapter 15, verse 2. And maybe you already have a reference there. This is what Exodus 15, 2 says. The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. It's the same thing. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. In Exodus chapter 15, who's singing that? Exodus. Exodus, In Exodus, it's Moses, sorry. Moses is singing it. This is the song that Moses sang after God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. So after the first Exodus, God implants this song in Moses' heart, and he begins to sing it. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. Here in Isaiah, it's speaking of the time after the second exodus. And it's the same song. It's kind of cool to think about that. God places the same song in the hearts of those that have been brought out of the world, the wilderness. You and I have been called out of the world as well. We are to be in the world, but not of it, it says in Romans. And so this is the song that you and I should sing with our lives. This verse 2. Our God is our salvation. I'm going to trust in Him, right? Trust and obey. We just read that to begin the, the, the service. For God is my strength, God is my song, and God has become my salvation. We've been called out of this world. This should be the song we sing with our lives as well. Verse 3, Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, We're going to drink deeply of this well of salvation. And and that's a great picture because, you know, the Middle East is an arid land. It's a dry land. Wells in the Middle East are a critical thing, an important thing. If you owned a well, you were set up well. You were taken care of. Of course, Jesus makes reference to living water. You will draw water from the wells of salvation, it says in verse 3. In John chapter 7... Jesus says, on the last day, the great day of feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then, of course, to the woman at the well in Samaria in John chapter 4, Jesus said to her, whoever drinks of this water, referring to the water of the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. 
But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Verse 3 again of our chapter, Therefore with joy he will draw water from the wells of salvation. It is Jesus that opens the well for you and I. Out of, out of an intense love, out of this love that we have for God, there's going to come a passion for others to praise His name. As we nurture our love for our King, as we pour our devotion out to the King of kings and Lord of lords, a passion for others to do the same thing is going to come. Our love of, from our love of God, a love of others will come. That's what it says in verse 4. In that day, in the day that we're praising Him as our salvation, in that day you will say, praise the Lord, call upon His name. You're, you're ta- we're talking to others now. Praise the Lord, call upon His name. Declare His deeds among the peoples. Make mention that His name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for He has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. It is the fulfillment of uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 60, that all the people of the earth may know the Lord is God. It is in that day that all the people of the earth will know. But we know now. We know that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Philippians chapter 2 would say that there's a day coming where every knee will bow and every tongue confess, right? Uh, Philippians 2.9 God has exalted Him and given Him, Jesus, the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We recognize that now. He is our King. He is our Lord. His name is above every name. And so we are declaring His name, his name to be exalted in, in this place. Make mention that His name is exalted, it says in verse 4. Declare His deeds among the people. Because of the love that we have for God, the outflow of our mouth should represent that. We should be declaring how wonderful He is, that He is salvation. Verse 6, the last. Cry out and shout, O inhabitants of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. It should be evident in that millennial day that as Christ is the banner and He rules and reigns from the earth, from Jerusalem, that the inhabitants of Zion, that perfect place, they would declare the Holy One of Israel is great. Jesus is great. So chapters 13 all the way up to 23, the next 10 chapters kind of take us in a different direction, uh, going back into pronouncing judgments, not actually on Israel, but on the 10 nations that are around Israel. So we're going to end there for tonight. What can we glean? What, what can we take from our study tonight? God is sovereign over all things. Sovereign's a word that we would throw around in church quite a bit, but I don't know that we all understand it. So just to make sure. God is sovereign. That means He is in complete control. There's nothing that He's overlooked. There's no mistake. God, God has never made a poor decision. God knows the end from the beginning. And he has the power to adjust and change things. 
He has the power and, and is in fact in control of all things. That's the idea of sovereign. He's sovereign over all things. We learned and we are, have been learning that there's a day coming when he will set the wrong right. Those things that we're wondering where he is on, there is a day coming when all that is wrong will be made right merely by his spoken word. Hear this. Today, currently, he is moving history toward his appointed end. If you're not currently satisfied with the way life is going, take it up with God because he's in control. He is moving history toward his appointed end because he's sovereign and in control. When he reigns on the earth, when he comes and spends that 1,000 years on the earth, all will be made right by his judgments. His will will be accomplished on earth as it is currently in heaven. And then our role in all of this is to exalt him, is to worship him and call others to do the same. The greatest commandment, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's our role in all of this, that we would worship Him in spirit and truth. We would exalt His name. We would magnify Him and call others to do the same. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord, our God, is our strength and our song. He also has become our salvation. Amen? Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we were in a place that we need you, needed you. In our wretchedness, in our unrighteousness, in our sin, we could not come into your presence. And your right to judge us as ungodly and sentence us to eternity separated from you. But in your love for us, while we were yet sinners, Christ came. In his first appearing as the branch, the branch of peace that reaches out to us and offers us reconciliation. Through the sacrifice of the cross, people can have a right relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Holy One of God, that is God. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, he absorbs your wrath that we might come into the presence of the king and say, you're more than my king, you're my father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for dying that we might have life. Thank you for defeating our greatest enemy, death, and resurrecting to life. Thank you that your name is above every name, exalted on high. Our knees bow, our tongues confess, Jesus, you are Lord. And I pray that as we leave this place and, on every, and for every day that you give us on this earth, we would exalt your name. We would magnify you 
And we would encourage others to do the same. For I have found you are worthy of all. All of our praise. And we cry it from the mountaintops. You're worthy, God. In Jesus' name, amen. <music>